Hello and welcome to I Am The Law. I'm Evan Cote and with me is Marissa Walter. How are you doing, Marissa? Good. We managed to do two podcasts in a row, two weeks in a row. Well, let's not count our chickens before they hatch. I'm sure something will fly occur <laughs> right now. I gotta gonna, go, bye. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna have a mass blackout, earthquake's gonna happen, my computer's gonna explode, I'm gonna have an aneurysm, something's gonna happen. Um, okay, so... Um, Marissa and I have been talking about an hour before we recorded about our uh, hellscape of reality. So hopefully we got that out of our system and won't discuss it too much. Um, it's been a busy week, but it's been mainly political. So we're going to try to avoid talking about that. Um, also, I have, I've been abstaining from the news. And so I don't have as much information as Evan this week. Usually I know more than him, but this week, That's no. That's never true. But yeah, Marissa, Marissa's like, oh, I feel like it's been a slow week. Nothing crazy's happened. And I was like, what? And I just listed like 10 things that off the top of my head of terrible things that happened this week. But, but again, we've already discussed that. So, um, and just, we're actually going to co-opt what was going to be my opening question to uh, become a main topic. So um, I will say I'm going to bring back the Cleveland Minute real quick, which is, and uh, yesterday was the NBA trade deadline, and the Cleveland Cavaliers traded away like literally 60-70% of their roster, um, and are completely new. Um, Marissa is unsure if I read your statements correctly. She's unsure if she likes these trades or not. I think... No, 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 no. I'm happy that something had to be done. I'm always emotionally connected to some of my players, and so I'm sad to see Channing Fry go. I think I loved having him on the team, but um, we were uh, what you might call a dumpster fire. So uh, <laughs> I'm happy that they're making moves, getting younger people, and I don't know a lot of the people that well that they moved onto the team. So Well, it's because two of them have been playing with the Lakers for the past four years, and so why would you have heard of them? Um... And... I can't tell if that's sarcastic or not. I don't follow the Lakers. No, that's my point. The Lakers okay. have been irrelevant <laughs> for four years, so why would you have heard of, of Larry Nance Jr. and Jordan Clarkson? Um, and then Ronnie Hood is from the Jazz. George Hill was on the Jazz last year, too. I have just... heard of George Hill, and what I've heard is that he's very good, but I haven't like been you know, following him or anything. He got... He was really, really good last season. He was having his best season ever, and then he got injured last year and hasn't really been the same since. And he's also been playing in Sacramento, so that has a lot to do with that, too. So, um, anyway, um, that's the Cleveland Minute. <laughs> Woo-woo! I'm excited, personally, to have that locker cancer, locker room cancer of Isaiah Thomas uh, with the Lakers. That's Who so would great. have thought that he was a lot, like, I assume because he's the shortest guy in the NBA, he's probably a nice guy. I don't know. Maybe that's like an insane thing to think. But I don't like... know. Short people are pretty terrible. My wife's <laughs> five foot two, and she's wow. No, I'm kidding. Um, no, but it's like the Neapol or uh, Neapolitan. The oh yeah, maybe it is Napoleon. Uh, Napoleon, complex. thank you. The yeah. Napoleon complex because he's short, and so he always has a chip on his shoulder. And so he always has to bark the loudest. Really, I, I liked him for the most part. I thought he was a good guy. Until... Yeah, when he was with the Celtics, I was kind of like, that guy's cool. You know, he's the shortest. People probably told him he couldn't do it all his life. But then he's out there being like, you know, he was putting up good numbers with the Celtics. It was impressive. Yeah, and then this season, he played with the Cavs for 15 games. And in that time, managed to turn the locker room against each other, including, specifically, he targeted his childhood friend, Kevin Love. So that was great. 
Um, I know. I was I, out on, as soon as, as soon as he turned I, his back on, not even just turned his back, as soon as he attacked his childhood friend, that's when I was out. Yeah, and, you know, Kevin Love already gets so much crap. I just have no tolerance for that because Kevin Love's been with the team for a very long time through a lot of very, very bad times. And you can't just come in here and start talking trash to him, you know? <laughs> like, what the hell, dude? Yeah. Okay, so um, our first topic this week is something that I actually find very fascinating, um, which is it just it, it it's not really something that there's a right or wrong answer or really a legal opinion is it's more of a policy concern. And so um, whenever you have a change of laws, there's a reason behind the change of laws, right? And that's what we call the policy concerns. Presumably. <laughs> but so, well, yeah, presumably you're not just doing something willy nilly and your policy and your ideas of what's fair and right and just changes. It progresses. That society always progresses. And, um, so for example, um, for the majority of this country's existence, it was thought that, uh, homosexual relationships were illegal, immoral, what have you. So they were made, they were made illegal. And then people's opinions gradually changed. And, um, then the fight became about gay marriage, which eventually those opinions changed as well. And so now it's legalized. And so now you have to then um, look at the laws, though, that weren't enacted regarding uh, prohibition or were uh, responding to a prohibition on gay marriage or homosexual relationships. And you have to look if there's any sort of contradiction that is now going to occur because now gay marriage is is legal and homosexual relationships are legal. Um, There wasn't just that's just one example, but there wasn't really anything that that was contradicted. There was laws in California specifically that allowed um, uh, basically marriage privileges to homosexual couples, even though they weren't married. And now those aren't necessarily valid anymore. And I think... Are they still in the... I think it's still in the books. You can get a... Yeah, I don't... partnership. I think you can still do that. Well, I, I don't know why you would, but because it's not... Anyway, um... I don't know why you would either, but I, I think it's, I don't think they're invalid. They're just like, anyone can do that if that's like what they prefer for some reason. Well, okay. And, and uh, to go outside the U.S. And, and still using the homosexual relationships in Britain for decades, sodomy was a heavily punished crime. And now gay marriage is legal in Britain. Yet people that were punished under the sodomy laws remain in prison. Um, that doesn't seem okay. Right. So as a society, we have to kind of tackle with, with the injustice. So what do we do? So to take it back to my point that I was actually getting to, what, um, or the actual topic, which is that uh, in California, um, very recently, uh, marijuana became legal to purchase and uh, sell and consume. Um, it, we passed this technically it was voted into law 2016 but it didn't take effect until uh january 1st 2018 and so there are a lot of people still in california jails that were arrested and prosecuted and um punished and still being punished for violation of marijuana laws at that time 
Is that fair? So, for, so first I'll ask you that question, Marissa. Do you think that's fair? Is it fair initially or is it fair that they're still there? That people are still in jail right now for violating um, laws against buying, selling, consuming marijuana when that is now all legal. No, I mean, I don't, I, I think if it's legal, then one, I mean, okay, if you're saying something's legal, just as a policy consideration, are we going to spend as a society our money to keep these people in custody who we've decided the thing that they did is no longer illegal? I mean, just on a basic, like, money standpoint, that's obviously not something we want to do. I mean, is there any is there any way you can argue, no, we should keep these people in jail, even though we've decided what they did is okay? Well, so you have the point of jailing people isn't it, there's different theories of it, but it's, it's a balancing act. But the, two of the main, I think three things, but I can't remember the third right now, but two of the main th three concerns that you look at is um, punishment and rehabilitation. And. And also, I think with the last one is to stop. Oh, oh, yeah, is to uh, the third one is to deterrence. Deterrence. Thank you. And so, the people that are in jail now for doing things that would no longer be considered illegal uh, related to marijuana. Um, let's let's think about that. So rehabil rehabilitation. Well, they don't need to be re rehabbed anymore because the crime that they committed no longer is illegal. So if they did that same action today. Who cares? Um, so that concern is gone. Deterrence, it's not deterrence for that person. It's deterrence for other people. But again, the crime that if someone did exactly what they did, assuming, you know, because you still can't sell like over or carry uh, over a certain amount of quantity of marijuana. Um, so assuming that they were arrested and convicted and are being punished for within the legal limits, Someone did exactly what the person that's in jail for. They wouldn't be, they wouldn't be arrested. They wouldn't be doing anything illegal. So there's no deterrence. So the last thing is punishment, and that's the only real justification you can have. And really, and pardon me for uh, my adult humor, but only people that have a real hard on for punishing people are gonna think that's that's appropriate, right? And but which there are quite a few, quite a few people in our society think that jail is to punish people because you did something wrong. So if that well, is why you think... Well, I think there is some part, there is some part of that that goes into to jail, but I just think utilitarian considerations, like, okay, fine, you you did something wrong, you should be punished. I think a lot of people would yeah. agree with that what I'm on saying a is basic the soul. level. The but soul when it comes, Yeah, when it comes to like, okay, he did something bad, he should be punished, it was against the law then, and he should be punished... But you have to spend ten thousand dollars a day to keep him in jail. Then it's like, well, I don't care about that that much. <laughs> well, okay, so let's let's take it back to something, and, and I don't mean to minimize it, but when I was five years old, right? If I let's just say I ate ice cream without getting permission first, I'd probably go on timeout, right? Twenty years later, I can eat ice cream. It's actually twenty-five years later. I could eat ice cream whenever the heck I feel like it and no one's going to punish me for it. So, um, sh does that mean that five-year-old Evan should not have been punished? No. I mean, at that time it was against the law. And so obviously you have this, that's not the, quite, quite the same because the punishment is not being sustained throughout, but at the same time it is 
okay, so they did something. I'm just playing devil's advocate, really. Mm -hmm. It's what I'm Mm -hmm. doing. And so, like, they did something wrong. They should be punished. And um, there is a bit of a deterrence argument because what it shows is just because you think there's going to be societal changes or you don't personally agree with something does not mean that you are free from repercussions. So if you violate the law, even if you think that law is unjust, and even if you think that law is going to be soon overturned, you still have to obey the law as it currently is constituted because you will still face the punishment. So there is some utilitarian concern. There's still some... I don't necessarily buy it. I think it's not... I think there it's well established at this point and you have to be living under a rock with your fingers in your ears to not understand that um, the war on drugs generally speaking was used as a tool of oppression against minorities and so um (laughs) and so most people in prison for drug related crimes specifically marijuana related crimes because that's what we're discussing are persons of color so you know if it's if it was a tool of oppression we don't actually find it that big of a deal anymore and these sentencings were always way too severe anyway you know i think i think it'd be proper to um i think that those concerns far outweigh the concern of of punishment for the punishment's sake and and deterrence well and i I just you know i took a class actually on um on like the philosophies of justice in law school and we had all they did a bunch of studies about the deterrence effect of certain laws because a lot of um what people would be saying when they would advocate for certain laws. We have to make that punishment bigger because it's not effectively deterring people. So if, you know, it's illegal to, what's something that's not controversial, steal a car, okay? And you generally go to jail for five years for stealing a car. They were, people were saying, okay, it's not stopping people, so we need to make it 10 years. And so this happened in a ton of different cases where they upped the punishment because it wasn't effectively deterring people and it had zero statistical effect on how likely people were to steal the car because people just at the moment where you're committing a crime there's just no point where someone's like well five years or ten years right they're thinking i can get away with it or not and that's sort of all that they're thinking about. It's just not this like complicated risk analysis no. that people do. There's, so there is a risk it, analysis, but there but it only comes into play if there is some sort of punishment. But the elevation of punishment is not. Yeah, is, exactly. Come into play. Yeah, that's exactly what the studies found. When you say if there's no punishment, obviously people will do it, but they don't really take into account the degree of punishment. Changing the degree of punishment doesn't seem to have any deterrent effect on actual crime committed. And so I think that's the same with saying, oh, like. Some pothead's going to be like, well, you know, I think the tide's changing and there might be a law change down the road that will get me out. No, it's either, you know, they're not, it's not that complicated of an analysis for anyone who's breaking the law. I mean, maybe for like one person ever, but no statistically significant analysis. Yeah, I I agree. Uh, And so um, the laws, so there was, I think it's Seattle. I, I apologize. I didn't actually have it written down where it is, but I believe in Seattle they are considering vacating all marijuana convictions. Um, I know, and, and I think I even said this Seattle. In the yeah, I know that's not California, but they're, they yeah, also have... Seattle. Um, in Oakland, for example, they have, and I may have mentioned this before, they have 
dispensaries that are run by people that were formerly convicted of marijuana crimes uh, don't have to pay the tax, so they have an economic advantage over um, other people as a form of reparations. Wait, wait, what? Really? So Yeah, so it, I'm almost positive I said this on podcast before, but the tax system of marijuana is uh, state tax, sales tax, and then, uh, so normal sales tax that applies to all, all sale of goods. Mm-hmm. Then you have a California marijuana tax, and then you have a county-specific marijuana tax. And that can, that varies wildly. Hmm. And so in Oakland, um, the county isn't Oakland. It's, I can't remember what the county is, though. But uh, in Oakland, they um, have no county tax for those that had been that were previously convicted and punished for marijuana related crimes and so again which is to give uh, both to give uh, reparations but also it gives them an economic advantage because if they don't have to pay the county taxes their marijuana is going to be cheaper or they can be the same and, and make that's more a pretty profit. significant advantage it can be and yeah. so um because otherwise the tax percentage in oakland for marijuana i believe is 50 percent Whoa. So, so it gets reduced down to I, th- I think around twenty percent instead of fifty. It's it, because the county tax is around thirty, I think. Um, That's a heavy tax. Uh, it is. Um, I, I mean, this is neither here nor there, but I have a feeling that they overreached a little bit on the taxing portion of marijuana, they, and they taxed it too much. Yeah. So I have a feeling we're gonna. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but it's just you know. California, we're okay with taxing the heck out of gasoline and cigarettes. Pretty much nothing else are we okay with taxing taxing it into an infinity. And so I have a feeling the more marijuana users are out there, the less they're going to be okay with the 50% tax. And so they'll probably pass some sort of uh, ballot measure that caps the amount of tax total. But that's neither here nor there. So I, how do you feel about some sort of um, reparations? Uh, so not only what so so you're you obviously you've been you said you're in support of releasing vacating judgments or uh, vacating yeah judgments against people uh, relating to marijuana crimes. Mm. How do you feel about uh, reparations being given to those that were previously convicted of marijuana related crimes? I guess um, this is the first time I've heard of it, so obviously I haven't sat down and thought about it, but I don't really know why reparations would be necessary reparations in my mind are for when someone did an obvious wrong to someone and they need to make up for it i don't know in a case where like something was just illegal elected officials made it illegal um and now they've decided no we've decided it shouldn't be illegal but i don't know if that's like an obvious wrong that needs to be fixed well, and so, as I alluded to and well, said explicitly before, it's pretty well established at this point that, <clears throat> excuse me, the war on drugs was a tool of oppression against persons well, of color. Well, that's true. That's and, true. And so, um, I believe Tohassi Coates called it the new Jim Crow. I think that's what he, had, what he refers to. But in any event, it's, um, it's a way of stripping minorities of rights. Um, and so, okay. So I see the argument in that way, you know, it was a way to strip minorities of rights. And so that is a a moral wrong in the way that I think of reparations. So to that extent, I could see the argument for reparations. 
Yeah. Um, I do like Oakland's strategy, which is not to just give money, but it encourages economic development. It encourages uh, business. Um, sorry, in business, and so I think. Yeah. I like the way I like I like that. Um, okay. Is there any other? So you're you're with me on? Oh, do you think that? So vacating punishments is what we were talking about with Seattle. Do you think that it should be uh, stricken from people's records, their felony convictions, or any conviction related to marijuana? Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, especially a felony because that that hurts your employment, and we've decided it's something that's okay now. Um, why, here's the thing that I think with records, I think it's a total utilitarian issue at that point. A record notifies people that this person has previously been, um, convicted of a felony. It's not part of the punishment. It's just a record, right? Well, it's not supposed to be, but it ends up being part of it. It does end up being part of it, but what it does is it, it forces people into cycles of poverty because they can't get jobs and then they, you know, end up committing more crimes. And, and so I think we have to believe in rehabilitation and to the extent we can um, not make someone just a completely unproductive member of society because they had a felony, we should do that because it doesn't help anyone if we convict people of felonies, put them out there on the streets and then make it so they can't ever get a job or do anything that's not illegal. Right. So I'm all about taking it off. We've decided it's really what they did really wasn't that bad. So why would we keep a felony that's going to stop them from getting jobs on their record? I agree. Okay, um, so we're on the same page. Um, okay, so the next topic, um, this is probably going to be a more short one, but uh, it's widely known now that the porn star Stormy Daniels had sex with the President of the United States before he was president in exchange for money or valuable goods, right? So I think she got like a condo out of it. Um, we know this because it was verified through a friend she told and like messages and stuff like that. And even uh, uh, the non-disclosure agreement that she eventually signed a draft of that was given to the press. So we know that she was signed a non-disclosure agreement. What I find interesting though is, and she even gave an interview back in 2001 saying that it happened, or 2011 saying that happened. So there's no real like dispute in my mind that this happened. What's interesting though is she has come out and said this is not true. Um, well, kind of. It's been really weird. I believe she said I, I didn't have sex with the president or something like that. So that, that didn't happen. Well, but, so... she said it both. There was a statement from her attorney and I think she said it herself recently in an interview with, okay. uh, an interview with Kimmel. Well, no. Okay, so I watched that in because when you said the Stormy Daniels stuff, I like didn't quite remember exactly who she was or what was going on. So I googled her and I watched some pieces from that interview, and he has a, a, a declaration that is allegedly signed by her saying it didn't happen, and she says to him, "I don't know what that is. I don't know where it came from. That doesn't look like my signature." But then she wouldn't say like if she slept with him or not. She just like wouldn't answer the question okay so whatever that means then that seems to be misreported then okay well then the this topic's gonna be even shorter 
Okay, so on a non-disclosure agreement, essentially, you can't, it is what it sounds like, you can't disclose the subject of the agreement, right? So in this case, she signed, she exchanged $100,000 for her promise not to tell anyone about her affair with the president. And she has abided by that. And you can do it a couple different ways. You can just say, I can't talk about that. Or you can deny outright. Technically, denying outright, I think, would actually be a violation of the non-disclosure agreement. Because, I mean, depending on how it's written, right? But you're agreeing not to talk about this subject, right? And so denying is talking about the subject. Is talking about it? I don't think, I mean, the president is very small-minded and might sue her over that. But I doubt he's going to because she's saying no or... He's not going to sue her because then he would have to go to court and all that stuff would be... I mean, how could he keep it confidential? I just don't understand how he could possibly sue her. And that's one of the ways a non-disclosure agreement cannot actually be applied, which is a... Well, first, like this happened in this situation, statements made prior to signing it, of course. Right. Also, in the court of law, non-disclosure agreements are not applicable for the court of law or any sort of legal proceedings because otherwise you could just get people to sign non-disclosure agreements that kill cases. So that's obviously not going to happen. And so most non-disclosure agreements, though, that I've seen, and I've never seen one which causes a person to affirmatively lie on someone's behalf. And so I initially thought that that's what was occurring here. It's not clear. I mean, her legal representative said she did sign that document. She said it's not my signature. And then I think at some point maybe she had said it didn't happen, but then it's just like it's all been very weird in my opinion. So why would you – if you were her attorney, would you advise her to deny it happened at all, assuming that's not part of the non-disclosure agreement? No. If I were her attorney, I'd tell her to not talk about it. I would tell her not to go on Jimmy Kimmel. I would tell her not to talk about it. Yeah, it's a bit weird. I mean, why go on Jimmy Kimmel? Why do these publicity tours? I mean, I don't understand. I'm just confused. I think that – and that's really kind of the issue that I'm going back at too is why would you ever sign a non-disclosure agreement? Would you then talk about the subject? And maybe she wants to talk about it, and so she's trying to find the way that she can talk about it without violating the non-disclosure agreement. So, I mean, this is sort of the best she can do. Or maybe she just wants attention. I don't know the girl. Like maybe she's just like, hey, this is good for my – I don't know. Does she have some media empire that could benefit? I don't know. She's not still doing porn, is she? I don't think she's still doing porn, no. But, I mean, maybe there's some way in which she thinks she can benefit from the attention. Writing a memoir? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It's just – it's a weird case, but – It's really bizarre. It's also bizarre. Like I just can't imagine like someone meeting Donald Trump and like not vomiting. Let's not go there. Let's not go there. Let's not go there. We promise to stay away from the politics. I just thought that the nondisclosure – the affirmative statements, untrue statements as part of a nondisclosure agreement is interesting to me. Now, do you think that would be enforceable? Because I think that would be against public policy and therefore would be 
uh, a court wouldn't enforce that. Do you do you agree? Enforce what? Let's say the non-disclosure agreement would said no. You have to like. Let's say the non-disclosure agreement said that if anyone ever asks you about this, you have to say it didn't happen, even though it, it truly did. Do you think a court would enforce that term? Oh, that's a good policy? question. Can a non-disclosure agreement require affirmative lying? I don't think it. I don't think it can. Yeah, I think I. I mean, I've kind of. My answer is in my question. I don't think that a court would enforce that due to public policy concerns because, with the non-disclosure agreement, I mean, kind of, it's like taking the fifth, right? It can't be used against you, right? The, taking the Fifth Amendment can't be used against you, but everyone understands what that means, kind of, to an extent, mm -hmm. right? And so, um, it, similarly, if a witness that signed a non-disclosure agreement says, "I can't talk about that," well, we know something happened. We just don't necessarily know the details, and that's the point of the non-disclosure agreement. But one, but when a witness comes, a witness to something is interviewed and, and is asked about it, and they say, "Oh no, that didn't happen." Right. That I think that's so against public policy because now the public doesn't even know whether or not something occurred. Yeah, I mean, you're requiring someone to lie. I mean, can you can you require someone to lie? Yeah, I just I can't imagine. I can't imagine that is uh, uh, enforceable term. So, um, okay. Do you have anything else you want to add other than uh, the president's disgusting body? Um, no. I mean, obvious. I don't know. No, I don't want to. I don't want to get into it. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. Well, our last topic is again a bit more wide wide-ranging uh, we just couldn't really find uh, interesting specific legal topics this week so it's a bit more policy heavy yeah. this week but um so in recent months um we've seen a lot of an uptick in workforces attempting to unionize and their employers attempting to dissuade or prevent it from occurring now in the u.s as a worker, you are entitled to attempt to unionize without fear of punishment, without fear of interference, anything like that. However, the power of unions has been eroded over decades of time to the point where they are few, unions are few and far between and the unions that do exist have very little power. Um, one of the industries that could use a strong union is in the um, reporting industry. Um, their jobs are in no way guaranteed. They tend to be laid off or a lot of, you have these venture capitalists or, or just pe company or people buying these publications for the purposes of making money. So what they do, like they do to a lot of companies is they buy the company, completely downsize and try or outsource um, to um, cheap labor. And so a lot of these like publications, they'll uh, specifically websites though, they'll they'll ask for um, free content. They want free content from just like random people to get exposure, right? And it's just terrible. And their their articles tend to be terrible, but they're the first there, and so they get the clicks, and that's what they want. Um, you saw a couple months ago, and unfortunately I can't remember the publication's name, but there was a website that was owned by real scumbag and they unionized because they were treated unfairly so they unionized and in response the owner shuttered the company the next the day after they unionized um and so all those people lost their jobs 
Washington Post is owned by Jeff Bezos, who is the president's you know favorite liberal top uh, billionaire target outside of. Uh... No, I'm not going to go there. Anyway, um, <laughs> you know, I don't personally think he's. Uh, I don't think he's that great of a guy. I don't think you can get that rich by being that great of a guy. And but anyway, um, the Washington Post wants to unionize. And he's been doing his darndest to get them not to, including doing interviews where he talks about the perils of, of unionizing. Um, I can't remember if he did or did not speak to this, his staff about the perils of unionizing for them, which I don't think they can do. I don't, management is not allowed to interfere with unionization efforts. Um, you have BuzzFeed, um, their new staff, which, by the way, a lot were laid off because they didn't hit their economic goals, which is not what newspapers should, or news reporters should be concerned about. But the BuzzFeed News, a lot of their employees were laid off. Despite breaking a lot of the um, Hollywood sexual harassment stories, they were laid off because um, they didn't hit their marketing goals. And um, I don't know if this is in response to you or not, but they are trying to unionize. And their owner went over to England and did an interview in which he talked about or sent out like a, a letter to the BuzzFeed UK, which I think is technically a separate subsidiary, and told them why it would be terrible to unionize and all the bad things that are going to happen to the U.S. branch if they unionize, which, again, is management interference with the union. It's threatening. Um, it's essentially threatening. Um negative consequences for unionizing. Um, the LA Times recently unionized and in response, there was like a giant smear campaign by their own managers against the union. And um, they actually just sold, the LA Times just sold to a, another billionaire um, just yesterday. Um, so we'll see what happens with the new ownership group, but they've been in turmoil um, under the old ownership for several years now. Um, and then this is not a publication, but Tesla, and this is my favorite, the Tesla workers want to unionize. And let me tell you something about Tesla, right? So Elon Musk wants them to work extraordinary hours, has high turnover, doesn't care about their, their rights or anything like that, constantly changes their environment so that they're like always like never feel comfortable, um, basically expects them to work at their desk. And if they don't, then they get fired. They do not have great work environment. They are on the verge of unionizing. But Elon Musk desperately does not want them to unionize. So what he has done is he has uh, promised them if they don't unionize, he will give them unlimited frozen yogurt and build them a roller coaster. Which, which I just pointed out to Evan. There's a show that we both like. Wait, and... you get, no, because you're gonna spoil it. So oh, you you're right. You're right. Never mind. There's a show that makes fun of frozen yogurt. We'll say, is not being great. Um. And so while that one seems the funniest of, of uh, the bunch because it's promising something kind of in a hysterical fashion, um, but it's actually very reminiscent. It's kind of funny. It's very reminiscent of uh, like 1993 Simpsons episode in which Burns was almost able to convince his workers to forego dental insurance in exchange for a single keg of beer. Um, it's very similar. <laughs> very similar. Um, like disturbingly so. Um, I mean, why not just offer your like employees like overtime and like decent pay? Well, and job protection and things like that. And that's the thing. 
And, and there, this is the real reason why these companies don't want a union is because they have to unions have power and unions can force fair wages and you know unions oftentimes get unfairly blamed i mean they're not blameless a lot of unions do dumb things all the time but unions are oftentimes unfairly blamed for their companies or management's poor decisions remember back in the um 2008 with the automobile crash you had all these companies blaming their unions uh, and it's their union's fault that they're going to go bankrupt and all that stuff. No, it was because they were making shoddy cars with shoddy materials and not being innovative, right? Well, I mean, uh, it's the th- you know, I mean, they could continue to make shoddy cars that were ineffective for a little bit longer if they didn't have to pay. Un- I mean, union workers do cost more. And so, I mean, to some extent, they are correct. But you're right. I mean make a good product where you can pay your workers good wages. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, Ford again, and, and I always like to use them as an example, but Ford didn't use the excuses. They recognized their own mistakes, did not accept a bailout, and ended up turning their company completely around because they started to make a quality product again. And they innovated instead of just saying, no, it's not our fault. It's everyone else's fault around us. Like that's, yeah. but that, that seems to be the mentality. And and it's been ingrained through media and unfortunately through somewhat of reality as well, where unions for a long time were, were oftentimes connected with the mob. And so you'd have these big stories and you'd have corrupt union leaders. And, and that's obviously not good, but to throw the baby out with the bathwater is just well, here, to me. Here's what I'll say. I, I, I mean, lots of, lots of people in my family either have worked for unions or do work for unions. We were team, you know, my, um, dad's a truck driver we were teamsters for a while um and so i feel like i have from the perspective of the worker an idea of the good and bad of a union and bo- everyone in my family who's worked for a union will say there's good and bad it's not all the the benefits are good being protected is great there are problems with it underperforming workers are protected and remain in the union and it's hard to get rid of those people you just can't get rid of someone once they're in the union um, and so, I mean, they'll, they'll say they love having their job protected, obviously, but there is, there are humans who are just enjoying the union and, and it's frustrating for everyone else because the other workers have to pick that up and you cannot get rid of someone once they're in a union, they've been accepted as part of the union. So, I mean, I, I think protections for workers are obviously good in an economy where we're losing good jobs for workers we have to do something but um there is good and bad to everything nothing's just like all great yeah and and, you know look um my brother-in-law is an air traffic controller and there's a uh, apparently a member of their union that gets paid to literally just sit on a couch all day because he's just incompetent but for whatever reason they can't fire him so they just have him they pay him good wage to not do anything that's not fair and so obviously there that's that's a bad aspect and i can think of many teachers that were fantastic growing up but i can also think of many teachers that were terrible but it didn't matter if they're great or terrible they didn't they had the same amount of protection and that's not okay and i think i think there's a way that we can can innovate and protect the workers both from the employers as well as from their fellow employees i think I think that's that we should come up with a solution, but I think I just I, I mean you, you can just look at the backsliding of the U.S. to where we're now at Robin Baron era level of income disparity, um, 
where all of the economic recovery from 2008 was captured by the top um, and wages have completely stagnated as as cost of livings have just skyrocketed. Um, it's it's incredibly horrifying to see and I think uh, the weakening of unions is one part of that and I think and the reason why I bring up the employer's actions is I think each of those were technically interfering with the unionization of the workforce but there's nothing bad that's going to happen to Elon Musk there's nothing bad that's going to happen to the head of BuzzFeed there's nothing bad that's going to happen to Jeff, Jeff Bezos because there's no one that cares about the worker right now Right, so whenever you unionize, the way you unionize is you can have basically you have a petition, and if you hit a certain percentage, and, and unfortunately I don't have the figures in front of me, but I think it's like ninety percent. If ninety percent of the workforce signs up for this petition in favor of a union, you get the union. If not, if you hit the, another threshold, and, and unfortunately I can't remember, um, and let's just say for illustrative purposes, fifty percent. If fifty percent say yes, I'm in favor of a union, you get a union vote on whether or not a vote to whether or not to unionize, and then what ends up happening is a uh, labor board representative comes out for the election, monitors the election, to make sure there's no interference that that happens, preventing um, uh, the workforce from unionizing, voting on the union, whether or not to unionize, and or swaying opinion on the union. And the employees are are free to to have arguments and, and, and discussions about whether or not to unionize, but then management is not allowed to do so. I just I can't imagine that the the labor board is going to do anything though to and you know it's kind of shocking because you have these large companies and, and very public and thankfully it's happening to um, news entities so they obviously at any time there's something happening with the news entity other news entities will report on it so we get to see it you know kind of high profile what's happening right now and it's it's a little distressing you know even these billionaires that that claim to want to save the world like Elon Musk even though I think he's a super villain. Uh, <laughs> That dude also recently like started to sell flamethrowers, so I don't know what you, I don't know how much more obvious you can get. But um, you know Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or you know these people that you know Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post and says it was for philanthropic effort. Well, the Washington Post has actually been quite profitable recently, um, and it's just continuing to grow and and both uh, profit as well as. Um, well, there's nothing inherently wrong. I mean, you have a business to make money. You know, I'm not doing my firm for for free. There's well, nothing wrong with making money. No, but he's pretending to be for doing. Oh, I'm, I bought the Washington Post for uh, for a good purpose or to be to do good for the world. When in reality, he's making a, a, a nice a nice penny off of it, and um, and is trying to prevent his his employees from seeking protection. That's scary, right? So who is there to protect the the workforce? And and quite and honestly, Jeff Bezos, who owns Amazon, has terrible work environment at these Amazon warehouses. His employees, all the blue collar workers that work at Amazon, are treated terribly, terribly. So, I mean, I don't know where the solution is going to come from because it's not from anyone in power, whether it's in the government or currently in the government or. Um, those that own the companies, even if they are ideologically on the left, they're not for the workers. Those on the right are certainly not on the right are certainly right. not for the workers. I don't know where, where it's coming from, but there, it's it's nowhere. And, you know, as much as I don't believe the economic anxiety excuse for Trump, you know, if fine, if you want to use that excuse or that reason for how he became president, then fine. But the thing he ran on then and purportedly why people voted for him was for vote for workers rights 
they're not doing anything for him. And so it's, it's a bit frustrating. Um, I think that there needs to be, and, and how this is legal related, I think there needs to be an enforcement of the laws that are currently on the books regarding unions. And I think there needs to be a uh, uh, smart changes to how unions work to give the employers, not necessarily more rights, but to give the employers a little bit more leeway in, in firing those um, incompetent workers because I think that would benefit the union as well. But I think the union needs to have a voice in that. Um, and, and um, but also strengthening the unions again so that they can, they can do what they're supposed to do. I mean, think about it. We have 40 hour work week. We have, uh, because of unions, we have, we have child labor laws because of unions. We have minimum pay requirements because of unions. It, you know, these things are good because given in a vacuum, capitalism will always eat its, its workers. That's how capitalism works. Um, right. So anyway, I, this has not really been legal at all. I apologize. <laughs> I imagine that I was going to have more of a legal topic on it, but I just kind of went on my soapbox. About, Do you have anything you want to talk about this? About the unions, about... I mean, I think, you know, politically, it's a little bit interesting because it would be a way to get great jobs to, I mean, if you don't want unions, then find some other way to encourage good jobs. We've got to find some way to encourage good jobs for people. We can't just have like minimum wage jobs and professional jobs. There's people who just, you know, aren't going to be doctors and lawyers who are still good, hardworking people and they need a job, you know, like. This is really going off on my soapbox, but I see a lot of liberals like promoting this idea of like a minimum basic income, which like morally I get, like I understand why morally that might be a great idea, but that is just giving up people. It's depressing to just sit there and get a check and have no job or even feeling of that you could ever get a job. And it's, it's giving up on people. Well, I'm not going to touch that because that's a topic for another day, I think. But, um, I will say that my mind is being somewhat changed a little bit on that issue, which is kind of funny because you're definitely taking the a little bit of the argument I took before about minimum wage. But anyway. Um, okay, well, it sounds like we don't have anything left we want to say about unions or any other topics. Read it so. to the law. <laughs> There's so much to talk about, but what about the law with unions? I don't know. Yeah, well, again, I just I think that there's there's massive interference that's very publicly occurring, and, and it's not legal, in my understanding of the law, and so I think it needs to something needs to occur, and um, nothing will. I don't know <laughs> anything about union law or how people unionize or. Or what's allowed or not allowed. I just allowed. told you. I, I just know, told you. But I, I don't know if actually, I believe you. You could be lying. I think one of our first podcasts, actually, um, I went through it as well. Like, step by step, I think. I was going to say, gonna... I feel like, yeah, for some reason, you've dealt with this issue before. Yeah. Um, but it was just, it, you know, it, it's in the news because, specifically because of the Elon Musk thing and how hilariously, like, <laughs> just like... I, how little do workers think about themselves that they're like, yeah, we can be bought off with a roller coaster. <laughs> like, I don't know. And like um, crappy, this dude, crappy this dude, subpar ice cream. <laughs> this dude just set his car into outer space. And he, and he, and he's trying to convince you guys 
that you're not worth unionizing, that, that your union, that your rights should be exchanged for frozen yogurt and a roller coaster. Well, he <laughs> launch, literally launches his car into space and builds flamethrowers for the market. Like, uh, anyway. All right, well, um, I think we'll be back next week if you'll, you'll know if we're dark. So um, until then, talk to you guys.